So hopefully you found your way to Philippians chapter 4. and We'll begin in verse 5 right there in the middle of that passage. Uh, Hear now the word of God. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Father, we thank you that you are indeed the God of peace, who I trust is with us even now by your Spirit, that we might know you and that we might draw close to you, that we might exalt and worship you and praise, hear from you through your Word. We thank you for your Word now that we can set our minds upon, and we ask that you would help us to have great understanding of it, that we would know who you are through your revelation, the ministry of your Spirit, not that we might simply fill our minds with knowledge, but that we might be transformed as we obey your truth. And so help us today, I think, in a very applicable passage to so many as we consider how it is that you offer us peace in a world that besieges us with difficulty that brings about anxiety. And Father, we do thank you for our dear brother Jeff and his service to you as he goes once again with life action and serves you for this coming year. We thank you for the ministry in which you have called him. And Father, we know especially this year he'll have a unique ministry of prayer We pray, Father, that this would be a time that not only would he grow as your disciple and son in his pursuit of Christ, but that you would use him, his ministry, his prayers, Father, to bring many to know you in a deeper and better way. We ask that your hand would be upon his team, that you would unite them, Father, and that you would use them mightily for the fame of King Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the 1950s, in the nation of Rwanda... There was a Tutsi pastor by the name of Yono Kanemusei. Kanemusei had, throughout his ministry, established 24 village churches that ministered to some 6,000 people. The nation of Rwanda, for thousands of years, in that central African territory, was actually known by, as Rwanda Urundi, and it was a feudal monarchy that was ruled by this tribe called the Tutsis. The Tutsis were kind of tall and proud uh, members of this tribe, and they would rule another tribe called the Hutu and almost brought them into serfdom for almost a thousand years, even though the Tutsis were only about 15% of the population of that nation. Well, after centuries of rule in 1959, the Hutu majority rebelled against the Tutsi. In the face of this civil war that erupted and all the political and economic turmoil, um, many of the missionaries fled. Many were called to safer locations. But the faithful native pastors, both Hutu and Tutsi, remained there ministering and serving. It was on the morning of January 24, 1964. The jeep pulled up in front of Pastor Kanemusei's home. Armed Hutu soldiers ordered the pastor and his friend who was with him, Andrew Kuyamba, into the jeep. Kanemusei told his friend, let us surrender our lives into God's hands. The men were driven to a military camp where Kanemusei asked permission to write in his pocket diary. Then he handed the diary to the soldier who he thought was in charge and he asked that that soldier if he wouldn't mind to deliver this little book back to his wife. The soldier replied to him saying, You had better pray to your God. And so he did, right there in the back of that Jeep, out loud. Lord God, he said, you know we have not sinned against the government. And now I pray you, in your mercy, accept our lives. We pray you to avenge our innocent blood. And also to help these soldiers who do not know what they are doing. Both men were tied up and Kanemusei was led away. He turned to his friend Andrew and asked him one last question. Do you believe, brother? Yes, Andrew replied. Kanemusei was taken to a bridge over a river and as he walked, Andrew heard him singing a song. There is a land that is fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. 
For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. And the crack of a single gunshot ended the hymn. Soldiers picked up Kanemuzei's body and threw it into the river below. And then they loaded Andrew back into the jeep. Their double message of intimidation and and murder accomplished, communicating to him that Christians are not welcome here in Rwanda anymore. They took him home. He asked for the little diary that he had given to the soldier, and he handed it to Andrew, who delivered it to Kanumuzei's wife. The last entry he wrote, we are going to heaven. So I wonder what enables a man to sing on his way to his execution on his way to his murder. I I wonder how someone finds peace in a situation like that, in such difficulty and troubling times. Of course, you and I don't face things like this, praise the Lord. And yet, even as Chris has shared with us this morning, we do face times of, of difficulty and hardship and trouble and trial. I wonder, do you have... You have peace in those times. Do you know peace in difficult circumstances, in uncertain uh, occasions? If you're like most Americans, your answer is probably no. I think if anything is true of Americans, we're kind of stressed out people. Very busy, very going, very anxious. In fact, Time Magazine ran an article a couple years ago that said next to Japan, Americans are the most stressed and anxious of all people in the world. One-third of every medical dollar spent in America is spent to treat anxiety-related disorders or their symptoms. Unfortunately, this plagues not only non-believers, but it plagues Christians as well, even though the Bible tells us here in Philippians 4 and verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. The idea of anxious literally means to chop up the mind, to work something over, to be buffeted back and forth. And it is prohibited for us here in verse 6. But I do want you to understand that the Bible some places talks about a good kind of anxiety. I don't, I don't think the Bible's referring to that when it says, you don't be anxious about anything, that you just have this carefree life. In fact, there are places in the Bible that says we should be anxious about pleasing the Lord. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Or Paul would say that he's anxious about the church. In 2 Corinthians 11, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So please do not read Philippians 4, 6 and say, I'm just supposed to be carefree and I'm just supposed to be irresponsible. No, I think we are called to care deeply. There's good biblical anxiety, I think, that we can have. But what Paul is referring to here, of course, is not that kind of anxiety. He's referring to what you and I might call worry or, or fretting or, or this, this anxiety that eats us up. Of course, you know, if you've experienced this, it doesn't help you one little bit, does it? Jesus said it's not going to add even a, a yard to your life. It's not going to, to help you at all. It just kind of creeps in and begins to gnaw at you, especially maybe when you're laying down in bed and there the anxiety hits as you begin to ponder all the things that could go wrong. One has said that anxiety is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Of course, anxiety is not only not helpful, it's sinful. It communicates that God is not trustworthy. I don't trust you, God. I don't think that you can help me through this situation. It is a lack of faith in God, which is why when Jesus would confront this type of fear, he would often rebuke those who had it with this repeated saying, Oh, you of, you know it, little faith. Right? And, and so when people are worried about their clothing or their finances... And Jesus says to them in Matthew 6 and verse 30, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Or there's Peter who is walked out to Jesus upon the water and then begins to sink. In Matthew 14, the Bible says, Jesus immediately reached out His hand and took hold of Him, saying, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? You see, anxiety at its root says to you, God is not in control. God is not good. God 
God is missing this and God will not work this situation out. And it is a lack of trust in him. It is sin in that way. In fact, anxiety is not just sin in and of itself. I think it leads to a whole host of other sins. For instance, if you're anxious about money, you'll be tempted to be greedy or covetous or you might be tempted to steal. If you're anxious about your relationships, you may be withdrawn or uncaring. You're anxious about your image, you may lie or become a hypocrite. And so the Bible, I think, wisely and very uh, appropriately tells us in verse 6, do not be anxious about, what is it? Anything. Do not be anxious about anything. And yet, instead, I, I think you and I often, perhaps, at least many of us, practice the opposite. We often are tempted to be anxious about everything. So many people are stressed at work. They're stressed at home. And they're stressed going from work to home. And from home to work. Right? Stressed about finances, living on credit, stressed about health, stressed about future, stressed about relationships, and we could go on. D.A. Carson, list a parade of pressures, car troubles, conflict with colleagues, impending exams, the expectations that family and friends impose, competition at work, a degenerating family, an arid marriage, a rebellious teenager, bereavement, financial security, and we have all these pressures, and I'm sure a host of other pressures that tend to stress us out, tend to fill us with anxiety, and every once in a while, a well-intentioned pastor stands up in front of you with a smile on his face and says, hey, don't be anxious about anything. And there's some people that, that are, I, I know they hear that and they think, give me a break. And we try walking in my shoes. Try living my life. What do you mean, don't be anxious about anything? And then there's other people in the exact opposite and they hear the Bible say we're not supposed to be anxious about anything and, and, and they become all convicted about the anxiety in which they have and they end up being anxious about all their anxiety on top of everything else. And so I would suggest to you that we would not fall into either of those alternatives. In fact, I would suggest to you that we not stop reading because this is no naked prohibition against anxiety. He not only calls for us to set it aside, He lays out for us its remedy, its cure. He tells us how we can overcome worry. And I will tell you, before we look at this text, the remedy is far different than what Dr. Phil's or or Oprah or whoever else is on television telling you with their meditation or their their, um, just soothing, positive speaking or stress management techniques. Now, Paul commends us to trust our God. And he gives us ways in which we can lay our well-being at the feet of our gracious God. In fact, I think he lists three remedies here to anxiety. I would suggest to you we can seek peace through thankful supplication, through honorable reflection, and Christ-like reaction, uh, Christ-like action. The result is that we will be protected from anxiety through the peace of God. Even more than that, we will be free from anxious hearts through the presence of the God of peace, as we see in a moment. And so if you're here this morning, and I would invite you to, to look at this passage in light of your life and consider how it is that you are following the prescription in which God gives us to overcome worry and anxiety. How is it that you try to cope with the things that buffet you and concern you? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We're delighted to have you here visiting with us today. And I would, would challenge you to perhaps think about how it is that you cope with things that bring anxiety upon you. I think what you will find is that the Bible's prescription to deal with worry is far different than what you practice. And I would suggest to you as well, it is far more effective. It is while God calls us to deal with these issues. So first of all, consider with me that we should seek peace through thankful supplication. Notice verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so we hear, see here that the, uh, the Bible tells us that one of the remedies from anxiety, how we can seek peace, is through thankful supplication or thankful prayers, we, we might say. I, I do want to note before we just kind of dig into that verse there, when he, he says, don't be anxious about anything, bring it to him in prayer. I, I, do, I do want, um, I, my fear is that we think, well, if I ever feel this anxiety begin to, to fill up in my heart, that, that, I'm, that I'm sinning. And I don't want to communicate that. I should have mentioned this already. But the, the 
Anxiety is going to hit you. I don't care who you are. I don't think the Bible is saying when you feel it creeping on you, the worry come upon you, that then it's there and you're, you're in sin. I think what the Bible is doing is when that comes upon you, like when a cold comes upon you, then you go take a remedy for it. And so anxiety is going to come upon you. It's, it's not whether it comes upon you. It is what you do when it comes upon you. You just sit down and let it have its way with you. Or do you do what God calls you to do? Do you fight back? For instance, uh, I think Psalm 56 says, when I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. Right? Not... Don't ever fear. But when fear comes, the battle begins. Fight. Or, or, or 1 Peter 5, 7. You know this. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Not, never have anxiety at all. No, when you do have it, don't just sit with it. Give it to God. Which is, I think, what Paul is saying here in verse 6 when he calls for us to pray to Him. We fight anxiety through prayer. In fact, he uses three synonyms for prayer there. I don't know if you picked that up. In verse 6, he says, um, But in everything, by prayer, there's one, and supplication, there's two. With thanksgiving, let your requests, there's three, be made known to God. Three different synonyms of prayer, all referring to going to God with our petitions and our requests. And I think what Paul is trying to do in using this different, these different terms is to kind of put a bold font on this reality, to underline it, to draw our attention to it, that you can pray to your Father in your times of need. After all, what father does not want to hear his kids call out to him in his times of need? I certainly want to hear that. I don't like it when my kids have times of need and they, they don't feel like they could call out to me. They don't, they're going to handle themselves when daddy could come in and just take care of it. God wants us. We have this great freedom to bring our petitions before him, bring our concerns before him, but we do it, according to verse 6, with thanksgiving, don't we? That, that's very interesting there, I think, and it has probably caused some confusion for some, that by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we let our requests be made known to God. This is uh, somewhat difficult to, to understand, I think, because how can we be thankful in the midst of the situation which is producing anxiety and concern? How can we be thankful in the midst of the hardship when we don't know how it's going to turn out? Well, we may not know how it's going to turn out, but we know who's in control, don't we? We know the one who's sovereign over it all. And so Paul says, pray in trouble with thanksgiving. And when you do, you pray in faith. To pray with thanksgiving in the midst of your your hardship is to trust God, isn't it? It is to pray with faith to God. In fact, one of the reasons we get worried is because, as we've already established, we don't trust God. We we don't believe that He's going to work this out for our good. We don't think He's in control. We don't think He's aware. Your anxiety, in other words, is lying to you. It's trying to deceive you. We have this voice in us that that wants us to think that God doesn't care. Or God is not good. And it's a lie. It's not true. You may not know the future, but you know our God who holds the future. And He can be trusted. Therefore, fight back. Tell anxiety to shut its lying mouth. My God is good. My God is in control. And so we may pray even in the midst of hardship with thanksgiving, knowing that we do not pray as orphans left to fend for ourselves. We pray with this great confidence in the loving care of our Father, even in the midst of uncertainty and hardship, as we make our requests known to Him. As He instructs us at the end of verse 6, let your requests be made known to God. That's interesting, isn't it? Because doesn't God already know our requests? Right, so why am I letting God know what He already knows? Right, God knows everything. He knows what I need and, and He knows what's happening. We're not going to pray to God. And He says, oh, wow, I didn't know that was bothering you. I'm glad you told me. Right, that's not going to happen at all. He already knows. And so some people will look at this and other places in Scripture and say, well, why do I need to make it known to God if He already knows it? He already knows it. Well, let me first say, if your theology leads you to sin, you should change your theology. Right? The Bible says pray. If your theology says, I don't need to pray, then something's wrong with your doctrine. Right? Your correct theology will never lead into sin, so you probably need to some help straighten some things out. The Bible says pray, I'm going to pray. I may not be able to figure it all out. I may not be able to put it all together, but I'm going to do what the Bible tells me to do, and so should you. 
And, and, and even beyond that, well, the reason we make these things known to the Lord, I think simply speaking them aloud, laying them at His feet, reassures us. It, it helps us. It soothes us to know that our God is listening to us. And anything beyond that, I think our Father loves to hear us call out to Him. I think He likes to hear your voice. I think He likes to hear you call. In fact, we just got gathered together and we sang to God. Right? We expressed to God what was already in our heart. Well, didn't God know? Already before we sang that we loved him and adored him. We think he's a mighty God and an awesome God. Didn't we didn't already know that's true? That we believe that in our heart? Of course he did. But something about gathering together and actually um, singing it out to him pleases him. He delights in that as we see throughout scripture. And I think he delights in hearing you pray to him and hearing you make your request known to him. In fact, he delights so much in it. He will respond according to verse seven by giving you his peace. For we read in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We were looking at this passage this Thursday night amongst the elders, and uh, it was noted that he says here, not peace from God, but the peace of God. Now, certainly it is peace from God, isn't it? But it's even more than that. It's just not some generic peace from God, but it is actually God's peace, which tells us that God is peaceful. I think that's important to know, that God is the most peaceful of all people, if I could use that term, that ever existed. He is not flustered. He is not surprised or confused. God is not biting his nails or pacing the hallways in heaven. He's sitting upon his throne, reigning as the sovereign God over all things. He is totally at peace with everything. And that peace that God enjoys can be your peace. This is the peace he offers you. In fact, Jesus already offered it to you on the eve of his crucifixion. By the way, when he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. In fact, the first words that Jesus spoke to the apostles on that Easter afternoon was that peace Peace be with you, it says. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He wants to extend to you and offer you his peace. And when that peace comes, according to verse 7, it shall guard you. It will, it will guard your hearts and mind, Paul says. Now, Paul was well acquainted with guards, wasn't he? He was chained to one even when he wrote these words now for four years on an 18-inch chain, wrist to wrist, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. He knew about guards. And for his situation, the guards kind of um, kept him from, from escaping. I wonder if Paul glanced at this guard when he wrote down these words. There are other times, however, that guards guard from attack. Paul also experienced this in that Jerusalem lynch mob that tried to kill him. And the Roman guards came and protected Paul from those who would do him harm. And I think that's what Paul means here in verse 7, that this peace will protect us from the anxiety that will do us harm. It will specifically guard our heart and our minds. And so when anxiety comes, tries to slip into your heart, lying to you, that you're not going to be able to handle this. This is all going to come unraveled. God's peace spots it and it runs it through, right? And when the peace kind of, the worry tries to slip into your brain, your mind, and he says to you in his deceit, this is never going to work out. Here comes God's peace charging and he cuts worry down. Circumstances will continue to attack us, no doubt, but his peace will not be defeated. He will guard us, the Bible says. God's peace will guard us. In fact, it's just not a generic peace as we've established it's God's peace. And because of that, he says in verse 7, it surpasses all understanding. In other words, the peace in which you have makes no no sense. It's confusing peace. It passes all, surpasses all understanding, which I think means that, that you should be anxious. You should be worrying. And yet instead you have peace. And some of you have experienced this, haven't you? And some of you can, can tell tales and testify of hard circumstances, incredible uncertainty. And yet at the same time, this overwhelming peace that surpasses all understanding. A, a peace in hard times. Which means, if we have a peace that surpasses all understanding, it, it means that sometimes the prayers that we offer don't take away the difficulty. I want you to see this connection. Right, so we pray to Him. He responds by giving us peace that surpasses all understanding. Well, if... If the prayers took away the trouble, right? If I was in trouble and I prayed and the trouble went away and then I had peace, right? Well, you would understand that peace. Of course you're at peace. The trouble's gone. The hardship's taken away. 
You have peace. Well, that's a no-brainer. That's not a peace that surpasses understanding. The peace that surpasses all understanding is a peace that, that occurs even when the trouble continues and the uncertainty is not answered and the hardship remains upon us. That's the peace that surpasses all understanding. And so, uh, please understand, if you pray and nothing happens, that is, you are not delivered, it is not that God has not heard you. You may not receive the deliverance, but you will receive, if you are faithful, God's peace. God will say to you, perhaps, I'm not going to give you healing at this time. Or I'm not going to give you the money that you think you need at this time or fixing your relationship that you're asking for. But what I will do is I will walk with you. I will be with you. In fact, Paul was well acquainted with this. He said three times I prayed that the thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan might be taken away from me. God responded to him. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul's response to that is saying, I will therefore boast all the more about my weakness. I will boast all the more about my disease. I will boast all the more about my financial hardship. I will boast all the more about my struggling marriage so that God's peace and power may rest upon me. In fact, you notice that this peace, not a, it comes in Christ Jesus, according to the end of verse 7, that this peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul never loses sight of Christ, does he? And he's always going back to Jesus. In verse 4, he tells us to rejoice in Jesus. In verse 5, he says that Jesus is near. And now he says we have peace in Jesus, peace that we come comes when we rest in his work, peace, uh, trust in his intercession, peace that comes when we rejoice in his presence. It comes in Christ Jesus. Therefore, whatever threat we face, whatever wound that comes upon us, whether it be by tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, or whatever enemy comes upon us, whether it be from death or life or angels or rulers or things present or or things to come or powers or height or death or anything else in all creation, we will have this unmovable, this indomitable, this unconquerable assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our great assurance which he offers us. This conquering peace is available to us when we pray. When we pray. In fact, you try to find someone who is a chronic worrier and enjoys a great devotion to prayer. I would challenge you. I've never met such a person. I think prayer and anxiety are like fire and water. They're opposed to each other. If you want this victory over worry, if you want God's peace, He gives you the remedy here in verse 6. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Lord, I'm tempted to worry about this. Lord, I present this to you and trust you. I'm feeling anxiety rising up. I want to give this to you. In fact, you notice what you're supposed to give him. You notice what you're supposed to pray about him. Did you see that there at the beginning of verse 6? But in everything, right? Do not be anxious about what? Anything. But in everything, right? Pray to Him. Big things, small things, everything. We pray to Him about that. Some people are are under the mindset, well, I'm just going to talk to God about big things. Right? When crisis come, then I'll talk to God. But in the little things, you know, I'm not going to bother God. I don't want to annoy God. I don't want to disturb God, whatever He's doing. As if God is up there thinking, listen, I'm trying to work out world peace here and build my kingdom. And you're asking me where your keys are again? You go find your keys. I don't have time for that. You go find them. No, God's not like that at all, is He? No, He's in everything we're to pray to Him throughout your day. Not just in crises. In everything. Pray to Him. So the question is, do you pray? Do you pray? You pray about your worries and your troubles and your anxieties. Or you just worry about your worries. You just talk to everybody else about your worries. Call your mom. Talk to your spouse. Turn on Dr. Phil's, whatever his name is. Check out the internet. Read books. Everybody but God. I think we're tempted to do that. We get all worried. Why not do what God tells us to do? Pray to Him. Well, when's, when's the last time, Christian, that you at length just explicitly just spent time with God about your worries, about your troubles, about your fears? 
And you just take them out, recount them to God. I'm, one by one, I'm worried about this because I think this might happen. And if that happens, then this happens, God. And I'm, I'm worried I can't handle that. And you just talk to him about that. You just lay it at his feet. But I trust you. You show me you love me because you sent Jesus to die for me when I was yet a sinner, raised him from the dead. Your word says, if you gave me your son, will you not therefore give me all things in Christ Jesus? Romans 8.32, I trust you. Lay it at him. Remind yourself of what he has done and do so with thanksgiving. Seek peace through thankful supplication. But we also can seek peace, secondly, through honorable reflection or thinking or reflecting upon honorable or good or just things. We see this in verse 8. Finally, brothers, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In preparing for this message, I, I discovered once again, or just rediscovered, if you will, that the mind in your, in your head is extraordinary. It is, it is perhaps the pinnacle of physical creation. One way to consider the, the, the majesty of your brain, if you will, is to compare it, uh, I saw a comparison with the Amazon rainforest. The Amazon rainforest is 2.7 million square miles. In that 2.7 million square miles, there are 100 billion trees. So think about that. I think there are about 6 or 7 billion people on this earth. Just in the rainforest, there's 100 million trees. If you were to count all the leaves on the 100 billion trees in the 2.7 million square miles of the Amazon rainforest, the number of leaves in which you count are the number of individual connections inside your single brain. It's extraordinary. I mean, and, and we, I mean, we could probably think about this for a good long time. And this brain which God has given us is the place where so many of our battles are won or lost. It's a battleground quite often. The thoughts that occupy our mind and the images that capture our imaginations shape who we are, how we act, what we feel. Everything begins with your mind. Every sin begins up here with your mind. This is where anxiety resides. It's also where peace resides. Therefore, what Paul is saying is we must learn to think differently if we are to overcome anxiety and worry. We're to bring these thoughts into submission. And so he tells us here in verse 8 what we're to think about. Depending on how you count, there's at least six or eight things here. But just consider them for a moment. He says, think about, first of all, whatever is true. That that uh, which is opposed to falsehood. I would suggest to you that all truth is God's truth, not just the truth found in Scripture, but every truth that is out there is from God, and we ought to contemplate and rejoice in all of it. Secondly, consider what is honorable. This uh, word is used to describe leaders or older uh, individuals. It's to describe a dignity about them. We're to think about that which is noble, Paul says, as opposed to that which is base. Consider what is just, thirdly. That is, uh, some translations say what is righteous as opposed to what is evil. Number four, focus on what is pure as opposed to that is sleazy or wicked. Contemplate, number five, whatever is lovely, that is which is attractive not disgusting or repulsive. Number six, reflect on what is commendable or admirable, that which is spoken highly of. And so Paul lists all these wonderful virtues. And what I find interesting is that these virtues are found not only within the church, but they are found outside the church as well. And I think Paul is urging us to discover and learn from the true and the noble and the right and the pure and the lovely and the admirable wherever it occurs. And so there are people outside the church who are seeking truth. And there are, there are people who are caring for the poor, which is lovely. And I, I think, to be quite honest, a good competitive event is honorable. I think a love song to a spouse is pure. I, I mention this because we, for some reason, are tempted to divide all this world with that which is sacred and, and that which is secular. And we say the sacred things have the word Jesus in it, or it comes from the Bible, or it occurs in this building. And everything else is secular. And the only problem with that is the Bible rejects that completely. And the Bible would rather argue that everything you do that is honorable and godly is sacred. In fact, if you're going to make a division at all, you can make it between that which is sacred and sinful. Certainly sinful things are not sacred. But I would suggest to you my job is no more sacred than your job. If it's what God has called you to do, I hope you are doing it to honor Him and to please Him. 
And Paul says that we ought to, to find and contemplate these things that, that are praiseworthy wherever we find them within our culture throughout this world. Now, we need to forget that our definition of what is honorable and just and pure and so forth. It comes from Scripture. It's how we understand what those things are. And then we go and we look for them. In fact, Paul sums up there in verse 8, and he says, if anything, if there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are the things we're to think about. The problem is, as you well know, that we live in a culture that is surrounded by filth and that which is unclean and wicked. It's all around us. And the problem is, is that you cannot clean yourself up if you're sitting in the mud hole. No matter how hard you try, you need to get out of the mud hole in order to clean yourself, which is why the prophet, I think, declared, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Unfortunately, poll after poll tells us that there is virtually no difference between what Christians and non-Christians watch on television or do on the Internet or the magazines in which they read. And therefore, our minds, as our culture goes, are increasingly becoming eroticized and blind blasphemous and find delight and even comedy in that which is wicked, that which dishonors God. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I, I watch television. I, I, I do. I enjoy television. I, I enjoy a good action show. I think, I think there's honor in that. Um, I'm not telling you you can't watch TV at all. But I am telling you that if you want to be obedient to God, you need to really consider what it is you expose yourself to. You need to take this filter and apply it to what you're willing to approach. I appreciate what Kent Hughes wrote in this wonderful book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man, when he says, I am aware of the wise warnings against using the words all, every, and always in what I say. Absolute absolutizing one's pronouncements is dangerous, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here it is. It is impossible for any Christian who spends the bulk of his evenings month after month, week upon week, day in and day out, watching the major TV networks and contemporary videos to have a Christian mind. This is always true of all Christians in every situation. And I would firmly agree with that. I think there is danger in what our world puts to us, and we need to be sure of what we're watching is going to bring us to the Lord. I'm telling you, you will not be godly if you do not control what you watch. I really believe that. I'm not telling you, please don't, I'm not laying down some rule. I'm not saying this is the show you can't watch and this show you can. But you, trust me, you need to make sure that you fill your mind with things that are honorable. Clean out the filth. The psalmist declares, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. And you're going to do that. In your house when no one's there and you get in your family room, you're going to walk with integrity there. I will not set my eyes before anything that is worthless. That's what he says. Is he right or wrong? I would say he's right. He's found in God's word. So I'm going to go with God's word this time. I think he's right. I think you ought to be aware of that. In fact, the Bible says here in verse 8 that we ought to think about these things. Literally, we ought to ponder them. We ought to consider them. Sometimes this word is used as a conversation about them. God commands his people to think. He does so repeatedly throughout scripture. Famously, he calls rebellious Israel together in Isaiah chapter 1. It says, come now and let us, well, you know it, reason together. I love it when Mary there, after she has been consulted with the angel and the angel leaves, the Bible says Mary pondered all these things in her heart. It's the same word here. Used in verse 8, she had a conversation with herself. She talked about them. She meditated on them. She thought about the truth in which the angel had brought to her. I bring this up because I think this is so incredibly missing in churches today. Biblical thinking, reasoning, logic, considering the truths in what God gives us. So much today is focused on emotions that biblical thinking is often minimized. And so people come to worship services and they come to get an experience with God. They just want to have an experience when they gather together. They want to get this spiritual high and, and they, they're here not really to think or engage mentally. They're just here to have some kind of experience to get them through the week and they'll just come back again. Now again, please do not misunderstand me. I think when we gather together as God's people, we ought to have an experience with God. I think he reserves special manifestations of himself when his people are gathered together with one heart 
heart and one mind. And I do, when I come and worship with you, I am looking for God. And I want to experience God. But friends, that's not all I'm doing. I want to hear from God. I want to consider His truth. I want to know what He has to say to us. And so I would challenge us to remember that we gather here to let God speak to us, that we might know His truth that we might consider these things, that we might meditate on it. I believe it is a remedy for anxiety. There's one pastor I know of who says three things, remembers three truths to himself, thinks about three truths to himself every time he wakes up in the morning. Number one, he says, nothing I can do can make God love me any more or any less. I am complete in Christ. Number two, I need nothing today besides my God. And number three, Nothing can happen to me today that is not for my good. Now, this is not the power of positive thinking. Please do not confuse. This is not Joel Olstein nonsense or Robert Schuller silliness. Okay? This is the gospel truths that we are reminding ourselves of, that we are, are considering and that we are focusing and that we are believing. We are thinking about these things, as the Scripture tells us, fighting to believe them. In fact, Jesus, in Matthew 6, he dealt... If you, you're interested in anxiety, I would, tr- I would uh, encourage you to go read Matthew 6. Jesus has this wonderful teaching on what to do with worry. And, and you know what Jesus says? Well, consider the sparrows, right? Let's go outside and go for a walk and think about the birds, right? Think about them. They don't look worried to you, do they? They're not all freaked out. They neither sow nor reap, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not much greater value than the birds of the air. Or go look at the flowers. Jesus tells us, go smell the flowers. Right? Go think about them. He literally says, go consider the flowers. Look at their beauty. Look at them. I mean, God did that. They're more beautiful than Solomon arrayed in all of his splendor. And they're here today and that will be gone tomorrow if God lavishes such beauty and majesty upon such things that are so temporary. You are so much more valuable than the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. Will your father not clothe you? You see, what Jesus is telling us is just think. Think about what I've made. Think about what I have done. Think about who I am. In fact, I appreciate Lloyd-Jones and his commentary. It's a wonderful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He points out that the disciples' main problem was that they failed to think. He says the whole trouble with man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. Life comes to us with a club in its hand and strikes us upon the head. And we become incapable of thought. The way to avoid that, according to our Lord, is to think. We must spend time in studying our Lord's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic. And we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. This is not the Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking, he says. Look at the birds, think about them, and draw your deductions. Look at the lilies of the field, consider them. The trouble with most people, however, is that they will not think. Instead of doing this, they sit down and ask, what is going to happen to me? How is this going to work out? That is the absence of thought. It is surrender, it is defeat. Our Lord here is urging us to think, and to think in a Christian manner. This is the very essence of faith, he writes. And so, friends, if you are troubled... If you are filled with anxiety and worry, I would encourage you to think about God's truth. In fact, perhaps you are anxious about the decisions in the future. You would do well then to consider Psalm 32, verse 8. The Bible says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Maybe you're anxious about facing opponents. Well, you might do well to consider Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Maybe you're anxious about ministry, as many pastors at times are tempted to become. Well, you would do well to consider Isaiah 55 and verse 11. The God says, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Maybe you're anxious about the welfare of loved ones. Well, you would do well to consider Matthew 7 and verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Perhaps you're anxious about being sick. Note Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Maybe you're anxious about getting old. Isaiah 46, and verse 4, will be worthy of your thought. Even to your old age, I am He. 
to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you. I will bear you. I will carry. I will save. Maybe you're anxious about dying. Well, then think of Romans 8, 14, verse 8 and 9. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Maybe you're anxious about being anxious. Well, consider Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Do you think? Do you ponder and consider the truth in which God has given us? Or do you just turn on the television to drown out the worry? To mute the anxiety in your heart? You fight against it. We must take time for quiet meditation. We must take time to be with God and to consider the truths in which He has given us. When's the last time you've memorized Scripture? I mean, when's the last time you just said, you know, this week I'm just going to memorize just a verse. When's the last time you've done that? I'm going to hide in my heart. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to chew on it all week long. I'm going to consider it. For some of you, it's probably been a while. Maybe a long while. Consider these things. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, the Word says. Well, the last remedy for anxiety is that we should seek peace through Christ-like action. We'll be quick here as we note verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So verse 8, I don't know if you notice, it says ponder these things, and then we get to verse 9, it says practice these things. In other words, godly thinking is, should not be separated from godly behavior. And so, in fact, Paul says specifically, practice what you learned from me, what you saw from me, what you received from me. And we've seen all of what Paul's talking about in our study of the book of Philippians, his pursuit of Christ, his following after Christ. Paul says, put in practice what you now know from me. And, and, and we're to practice these things. We're to do these things. We're to, to do what God calls us to do. And quite often what we, we sit under God's teaching or hear God's word and, and we think, I, I really wish so-and-so was here to hear that. You ever do that? Yeah, you, you, maybe you're doing that even right now. I really know someone's anxious. They really need to hear this. I'm going to get them a CD or something. Right? And you kind of give it to them, right? And says, listen, you need, you need this. You need to hear this. And I don't think that's necessarily bad, by the way. Um, I, I think it's probably good to be, want to minister to other people. But I think it's probably even more important that we come and hear from God and we, we first are listening for what we need to hear, what you need to obey. Elizabeth Elliot um, once heard her daughter singing to her cat, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. <laughs> <laughs> And so I think that's good theology about cats being wretches. I'm not sure about them being saved or not. Um, but you see the application. I'll apply everything to you, to, to you. You need to hear this. Well, the Bible says you, you practice these things. In fact, it uses this word practice. Sometimes we use that of lawyers have a practice or a doctor has a practice. And what we mean by that is they have a normal routine. Well, Paul's telling us Christians have a practice too, a normal routine. Obedience, godliness, faithfulness. So we follow Jesus, pursuing Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we seek after Jesus, we see here in verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. You see that there? What a wonderful promise. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, it seems like a play on words. In verse 7, he said, the peace, you'll have the peace of God. Well, now we see how it is that we have the peace of God because we have the God of peace, according to verse 9. Therefore, the remedy for anxiety is not some prescription you pick up in the pharmacy or recipe you follow. It is the peace of God that guards you because the God of peace is with you. The God of peace is with you. And maybe you came here today and you were looking for peace. Maybe you thought you knew the passage we're going to study and say, I really need peace. I offer you something so much better. The God of peace to be with you. It reminds me of when Jesus was in that boat and the storm rose, winds grew and the waves abounded. Jesus there asleep in the stern, 
exhausted from his ministry and the apostles becoming increasingly frantic and worried, filled with anxiety. Lastly, they conclude that we are going to sink. And it's at this time they go and wake up Jesus saying, do you not care that we are all about to die? And Jesus walks to the front of the boat, the bow of the boat, and he speaks to the wind and the waves and he says, peace, be calm. And the waves died. Wind ceased. And he turned to his apostles and said, Oh, you of little faith. Why? Why why does Jesus say they have little faith? Some have suggested that it's because they didn't wake up Jesus earlier. I don't think that's the case. I think it's they had little faith because they think being in the storm somehow removed them from his care. Removed them from his protection. They were fearful. They thought it was all going to end. I want you to understand today the presence of trouble is not the absence of God's care. In fact, his care is often seen in the midst of trouble. I think the question this passage raises is would you rather have peaceful waves and know Jesus or would you rather go through the storm with the God of peace in your boat I think that's a hard question for honest you want a peaceful life without God walking beside you or are you going to say yes I'm ready for the waves and the wind as long as you are with me That's what he promises you. Not ease himself. I will be with you, he says. I will never leave you, he says. I will never forsake you, he says. Biblical peace is not the absence of waves. It is the presence of the master of the waves in the boat with you. I wonder how our lives would change if we really believed that the God of peace is with us always. Never leave us wherever we go. He is with us. There's only one way for Him to be with us. It is through Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus has come to this world because we have messed it up through sin and He had lived a perfect life and died upon a cross for our sin. Raised three days later, and the Bible tells us that if you believe that God raised him from the dead and confessed with their mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. If you would bow your knee to Jesus, you will have the God of peace with you. This is why we call him Emmanuel, God with us. That's just not a Christmas celebration. It didn't end when he ascended to heaven. For after the resurrection, he declared to us, and behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so I encourage you today, Christians, follower of Jesus, head out into the storm, knowing that you are not alone. You can face the waves for Christ is with you with courage and peace, knowing that the God of peace is there always. Father, we love you and we thank you for our Lord. We thank you for the work that he has done for us. We thank you that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, that he shall be with us. Now you help us, please, through your spirit and the ministry of the word, that it would take root in our hearts, that we would say no to the lies of anxiety and worry, declaring my God is in control, my God is good, and my God is sovereign. Help us, dear Lord, to fight this fight, to trust you we pray in Christ.